We can read articles and newspaper clippings from the 1950s and 60s, and the same exact scenarios are going on and the same frustrations and the same rage and hurt and pain and anger exists within our communities because of what's happening with either vigilantes or the state. From the Grio, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Jason Johnson, and we're here for What's In It For Us. So, Jason, we have sort of a show and review, and I want to talk about what 2020 has meant to us politically and in American history. So it feels like we're kind of at this weird halfway point of our second civil rights movement. We're trying to figure that out. I want us to talk about the 1964 Civil Rights Act, 1965 Immigration Act, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, because I view those as a triumvirate of acts. And then I also want to recognize the loss of David Dinkins as a great national leader, not just the mayor of New York. What say you? Well, I say that if we are halfway through the civil rights movement, I'd be shocked if we made it safely to the other side, because I don't know how that's going to look like. From a policy standpoint, I don't know that I think that LBJ has been reincarnated in Joe Biden, but we'll see what happens. We don't know what Kamala Harris's role is going to be in that process. And quite frankly, it's not just David Dinkins this year. Above and beyond COVID, we have lost a lot of prominent, important Black folks this year, which are definitely worth remembering because they're going to have an impact on people's legacies going forward. Indeed. And you know, I can talk about LBJ all day long. And what he meant for civil rights and how we're trying to continue the legacy. But the rollback of one act is the rollback of all three. So the rollback of the Civil Rights Act is indeed a rollback of the Voting Rights Act and the Immigration Act, something that we've seen for the past four years systematically under Donald J. Trump. So key being, and we always ask this question, when you look at these policies, when you look at these changes, when you look at what Joe Biden is going to do and you look at everything that will come out of 2020, we got to ask that question. What's in it for us? So, Jason, before we get started, I want to talk about something that was on our timelines earlier this year, and which is this idea of black in the ivory. And so there were quite a few black academics, or as I call them, black academics, who were talking about some of the experiences, some of the trauma they experienced while not only in grad school, but as faculty members at these institutions. And I always say they're called institutions for a reason, because they have a mode of thought, a mode of behavior, a history. And, you know, many because people- Because they lock you away until you feel mentally ill? Yeah. And, you know, I always joke with you, you get to teach an HBCU, a historically black college or university. I always tell people, well, I teach an HWCU, right? And I've only gone to HWCUs throughout my entire professional career. And the reason why I call them HWCUs as opposed to PWIs, which is primarily white institutions, which is kind of the, the vernacular we use in the academy. But I say HWCU because I teach and have attended historically white colleges and universities. Universities set up specifically for the production of knowledge for white people, for the production of excellence for white people, for the education of white people. I just happen to be the fly in the buttermilk and, you know, <laughs> the girl who sat by the door listening in on all the nonsense and shenanigans. But Dr. you, however, Greer. teach at Morgan, which has a long history of Black excellence and teaching Black students for a particular focus. Look, if your skin tone was closer to buttermilk than a fly, then they would like you. You know that that colorism <laughs> also plays a role. It also plays a role, you know? If you're a bit more parquet and margarine... Don't forget, I, I need to straighten my hair, too. That's exactly. You need to straighten your hair because you'll never get a job if you don't have straightened hair. So this one hits me in all my feelings, both personal and professional. So I did not enjoy my graduate school experience at all. That doesn't make me unique. Graduate school isn't necessarily supposed to be fun. Yeah, I call it college with no fun. Yeah, and that depends on somebody had a good time in college. I had a great time in college. And I went to a former slave owner university. Hooray, UVA. Ditto. Um, <laughs> 
I mean, but weren't they all? Haven't we also discovered that every single college was pretty much built off of like slave labor? And P.S., you know what? These are water is wet stories where it's like Hopkins owned enslaved Africans. I was like, okay, and the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And P.S., if your university did not enslave African human beings, they profited off of gentrification, eminent domain, relocation. I teach at a university that is downtown New York City. And if you've ever seen West Side Story and all the Puerto Ricans that lived in a community, guess what? That's where my office is and they're no longer there, right? right? So, I mean, it's one way or the other. Your university is an institution that works in cahoots with said government, local, state, or federal, and they have taken lands and or people to set themselves up. What is the story? What's the buzz? Yeah, they take people, they take land, they take all variations of it. They made their money off of tobacco and drugs. Again, I am so- Is it tobacco or is it tobacco? It's tobacco actually. It's oh. tobacco Because when it gets wacky, that's the time that we get in trouble for using it. But, you know, it's always amazing to me, and this has happened throughout the course of the summer. This leads to, you know, some of the black and the ivory, where there'll be some archivist, some woke archivist, and it's not usually somebody who's African-American, because, like, we've been pointing this stuff out ever since we were let into these institutions in the early 70s. It'll be some archivist that's like, my God, I just discovered that the Georgetown, founding president created 12 comely Negroes for a bucket of molasses and a textbook. And everyone's <laughs> shocked. And it's like, why do you think it's called Black Molasses Hall. Like, that's right. <laughs> that name. It was named after a Black woman named Molasses who used to nurse his child. Like, this racial reckoning. And that's what led to the hashtag. So it's a national hashtag. And it was personal for me, not just because I had those bad experiences in graduate school, but because I come out of an institution, and I will say this, at the time that I graduated from Chapel Hill with my doctorate, which is only 10 years ago, I got my doctorate in 2009 from 10, 11 years ago. I was only, I believe, the fifth African-American in the history of Chapel Hill to get a PhD in political science. This is North Carolina, a state that's got upwards of 20, 25% African-Americans in it. And my department had only graduated five black people with PhDs. They have improved since, but those are terrible numbers. Mm -hmm. And they're indicative of an institution that was not making the best. Because you can't tell me in that same period of time that Chapel Hill hadn't produced hundreds of dozens of great business people and lawyers and even MDs and psychiatrists and psychologists. But when it came to these graduate programs where you are judged, I don't know if you've heard about this, Dr. Gray. I've probably told this to you. But I always tell people when I talk to folks who are in like medical school and the discrimination and harassment they face in medical school, it's like, yes, it's racist, it's terrible. But you know what? If you write on your exam, the heart has four valves, it has four valves. They can't right. fail you. They can't and fail you. With us, day. it's social science, so it's subjective. Completely. I mean, like literally, I failed my comps. I failed so many things that I'd never failed before. And no one could ever give me a reason why. It was like, oh, don't worry about it. You can just do it again. And I was like, okay, first of all, you do know that you're only making me like a superhuman scholar. That's one. But like the fact that you can't give me a justification, you won't give me a justification. And this is just where we are. And I was in New York City, right? And so it was like, wow, you guys are, you know, the person who had graduated before me had graduated a decade before that in New York. So we're not talking about Idaho and Iowa where you can't find Black folks who want to go there. This is the largest city in the nation. So what's fascinating though, Jason, when that Black and the Ivory conversation happened online, I happened to be on a panel that week. And I said something, and I was with a very senior scholar of color who had gone from academia into administration. Mm -hmm. And I just said in passing, you know, I've probably only processed like 20% of the trauma that went on in grad school. And that's (laughs) racially, sexual harassment, you know, things that I sort of blocked out and I'm just now allowing myself to process because, you know, it was like that tunnel vision. I got to get out of here. And so I'm not going to pick apart all these experiences that are just 
crippling if I allowed that to happen. And she DM'd me while we were on the panel. This is someone I look up to. This is someone who is incredibly established in her career. Got my popcorn. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, "Mm, juicy. And she says, 20% question mark. Wow. I think I'm only at five. Wow. And I was like, this is someone who's older than me, who I would argue, you know, I look up to her. I think that she's quote unquote, more successful, you know, in the academy. Uh, She's published several books. She's moved over to administration. And she was like, Chrissy, how did you do it? Like, I'm still struggling. Now, granted, she's first gen. She did not come from a family of college graduates like I did. I think that actually talking to people who are first gen, that was a little something that kind of helped me process maybe a little bit more because my sister was in med school. My parents did go to college. My grandparents went to college. Like there's this collegiate history. I didn't feel lonely, you know? My folks came out of the projects, but that's okay. That's a good (laughs) But you know, but I think the trauma that we all experience in different ways, whether you have a support network or not, is really deep because now, you know, we graduated from grad school over a decade ago, both of us, but there's certain times where it's like, I'll get a certain smell or I'll see something. And it takes me back to being like, I was in a really bad place with those people. So I will tell you, this happens to me a lot. And I may have made up share this. It's like when you get out of a really, really, I mean, and this is not to make light of it, but it's like getting out of a really abusive, bad relationship. Oh yeah. And grad school traumatizes you so much that like, even though I love the institution that I'm at today and have really great relationships with my colleagues and my dean and my department chair, I can still get that flashback where like, I'll get an email from my dean that says urgent. And it's suddenly you're 23 again. <laughs> And you're like, yeah. oh, jeez. Oh, God. Oh, I'm broke. I'm broke. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. You know, I was just telling some of my students this. And again, there's a difference. Graduate school is not supposed to be easy. No one is assuming that the process is going to be easy. It is financially draining. I was making at my institution at the time, they gave us. I think it was like a thousand, eleven hundred dollars a month, and my rent was six forty. Right? Mm-hmm. So, oh, listen, I made fifteen five, and my rent was seven fifty per is, month. Yes, you had a 50-50 split, right? Like I, you know, I in New York City, mind you, in New York City, where they charge you twelve dollars for a carton. Let's of milk. put it this way, Jason. I will say this: if you ever want ramen, fourteen different ways, I got you. <laughs> I y'all, got you. Look, the graduate students that I know who like survived New York, like y'all were on some like penitentiary level. Like y'all figured out how to make prison wine and like y'all were Potato chips and hot sauce is a meal. Okay. Yes. Like you had, <laughs> That is a starch. That is a vegetable. Like it is a full thing. It is, it is four food groups. It is breakfast, lunch, dinner, and brunch. And P.S. Guinness. The reason why I drank Guinness is because that is a full meal. You can drink Guinness and that's dinner, period. And, so you and, got your so spirit you go your and your meals. Did you go to your AA meetings? Because when you start saying Guinness is a full meal, I mean, like, it may have a thick head. It may be a frothy beer, but I don't think it's like a full thing. By the way, as a non-drinking person, I don't even know what Guinness tastes like because to me, all beer looks like, like horse it looks, it looks like horse pee to me. Very funny. Right. Anyway. Well, you know is, what? Let's definitely revisit this because yes. I have a feeling certain listeners either survive graduate school or are thinking about graduate school. And we don't want to scare people off, but we also do want to be. I do. I want to scare you off. Don't go. <laughs> All right. want to so we'll be keep, saved. As we think about what's in it for them, let's keep thinking about what's in it for us. Okay, Jason. So this conversation about where are we in this second civil rights movement, some people call it a third reconstruction. We're still processing the death of Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, right? Those 
those deaths, those murders kind of spawned what many argue are like a new generation of Black activism. Geographically, I think it's really been collectively traumatic because we can no longer just write off, you know, bad things happen in the South. We're seeing things happen in major cities, Northeastern cities, the Midwest, the South, the West Coast. I mean, it's across 50 states, realistically. It's just certain deaths get more attention than others. And then we have this kind of Selma to Ferguson connection where we've made progress, obviously, but we're still, it seems like we're still trudging the same road. We're still talking about the same things. We can read articles and newspaper clippings from the 1950s and 60s, and the same exact scenarios are going on and the same frustrations and the same rage and hurt and pain and anger exists within our communities because of what's happening with either vigilantes or the state. And by that, I mean police officers who have these sort of state-sanctioned killings. So we move, with the assistance of three dope Black women, from this idea of kind of Black Lives Matter as a hashtag to this, not just a national rallying cry, but what we saw- a global rallying cry. A global rallying cry. You were seeing protests in New Zealand and Australia say nothing about the continent of Africa, say nothing about countries all over South America. Europe, right? We know Black Lives Matter in UK is just like, listen, we are not playing with you. Black Lives Matter in Belgium, we're throwing statues in the river. (laughs) Come and get it if you want it. Right. Right. Like the same thing we saw in basically parts of Virginia we were seeing in Brussels uh, in Europe. So what do you make of this second civil rights generation, a re-reconstruction? How are you feeling? Walk us through it. So what's interesting to me, Dr. Greer, I'm sure you've had this conversation with your parents. When I was in high school, right, I had the conversation with my parents where I was working on like a school project. I was like, what did you all do during the civil rights movement, right? And they told me various things, including some very activist stuff that my mother had never told me. And she told me, that's the whole story that I will tell you off camera one day, about my mom telling me what activism she was involved in, things that she committed. But I heard about those stories from my parents. And I remember my grandmother, before she passed, talking to her about Martin Luther King. And my grandmother was an activist until the day she died. But she's like, eh, you know, King was like down South. I didn't, up in Newark, New Jersey, we didn't Mm -hmm. necessarily care that much about what he was doing. We thought that was cool, but that was down there. What I think is different about what's happening now because of communication technology is, like you said, this is happening. Philandro Castile's in Minnesota and George Floyd is Minnesota and Atiana Jefferson in Texas and John Crawford. And Breonna Taylor in Kentucky. Breonna Taylor in Kentucky. This is all over the country and we're able to see these things all over the country, which makes it less of a, we need to punish and reconstruct the South and more of a, this is a national issue that needs to be dealt with. And those are instances, obviously, Dr. Greer, where we're talking about death. I think what we saw, I look forward to the day when I'm old and gray with my cybernetic helmet what gray? Where's chair. the gray? Gray what? Gray sweatshirt? <laughs> yes, my gray sweatshirt and my gray pants because we'll still be sheltered in place. Um, old and gray and some progeny of mine or some student of mine is like, Dr. Johnson, what did you do during the great civil rights movement? And I will lie and I will tell <laughs> All the great things that I did. I was like, I was there when we tore down the statue of Trump. They won't remember. It'll just all be on YouTube. Anyway, the point is... <laughs> well, well I mean, them. listen, everybody else is saying that they marched with King. I'm like, all these people marched with King. True. King wouldn't have needed to march, y'all. Right. <laughs> exactly. What? How many people in the suburbs, how many people running for office said they were marching with King, but can't find a photo anywhere? You're Not right. I'm going to say I marched in every single protest. I'm going to say I was there with Breonna Taylor. I was there with Ahmaud Arbery. They can't find it. I'll say it was a race when Twitter went down in 2027. Anyway, the point is, I think what'll be interesting is I always tell people these things always look cleaner and nicer in retrospect. Mm-hmm. I was like, everybody thinks that, you know, yes, they had their attention. People don't realize that the way that MLK 
and Malcolm X used to fight with each other and Roy Wilkins and everything else like that and Baynard Ruskin. The venom with which they looked at each other is not dissimilar from the fights that we have seen on social media right. between political right. activists. It's and, not like the Black Panther Party and NAACP were like, oh my gosh, let's no. totally coordinate with this march on the Sunday. NAACP, they, cool. they hated SNCC. They hated CORE. And we see the same SCLC, thing SCLC, you name it. The SCLC. The same thing happening today where the Obama administration and the incoming Biden administration like playing this game where it's like, oh, playing this game where it's like, oh, we're having a meeting with legacy right. civil rights organizations, right? So they'll bring in the NAACP and the LDF, but they won't bring in Black Lives Matter and they won't. So we are seeing similar things. I don't know how this one is going to play out because quite frankly, we are at the precipice of what will be the most important presidency in this process. If Joe Biden and Kamala Harris screw this up, the backlash in 2024 will take us back to the 50s. Beyond back. And so I don't think we're at a halfway point. We could be at the end if they're successful, or we could just be at the halfway point if they're not successful and we got to fight this stuff for another 20, 25 years. Well, what I find fascinating, Jason, is that, you know, Biden has said when he was campaigning, he really said this, that he was going to be a transitional president, Mm -hmm. essentially a bridge president. Right. And I think in the optimistic view, it's like, oh, you're a bridge to sort of the new Democratic Party, where we actually do take progressive values into account. We actually Mm -hmm. do move forward. You know, I'm an urbanist, but we think about Blackness outside of cities, right? Right. So this idea of suburbs that Donald Trump uses as a code word for white, it's like, no, Black folks are being kicked out of cities. We live in suburbs, right? Ferguson is a suburb of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. You know, San for Florida where Tamir Rice was killed. That's not Miami, Dade, you know? And so when we think about where Black people are actually being traumatized, yes, it is in major cities, but it's also outside of these cities as well that we're seeing, right? And so the bridge that Biden talks about, the optimistic view is that he's a bridge to the other side, a new civil rights movement. He could also be a bridge to darkness if we don't play it right and we get rolled back and we start thinking like, this looks like 1924 as opposed to 2024. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I'm a believer in the cyclical theory of history. If you look at the 1800s and 1900s, cyclical theory of history says this isn't going to work well, right? If you look at the 1820s, it was some of the most repressive parts of the apartheid state in the South against Black people. There were new Black codes put in, and we didn't really get a civil rights movement until around the Civil War in the 1860s. You look at the United States, it was the 19-teens and 1920s, where you had the bloody summer of 1919. Some of the most abusive riots and attacks on Black people happened in the 20s and the 30s, and we didn't get things better until the 1960s. We are now in the 2020s. Things are bad. They've been getting worse. If Joe Biden pulls something great off, then we're good. If not, I don't want to have to wait until 2065 to clean this up. I don't want to have to wait for the future version of MLK to pop up because I'm going to be too old to enjoy my free stuff by then. So Listen, I want all the free stuff that we keep getting. now. Like now. (laughs) I want to get all the things that they say that we keep getting. Right. (laughs) They're like, black people get everything. And I'm like, what? Where is the free stuff? I want all the free stuff. You know this because I've been having all the issues like throughout this week with this thing. Can I get this free Obama phone? I never got a free Obama phone because my (laughs) phone sucks. My, hey, listen, my droid is terrible. I'm still waiting know. for the Mexican food trucks on every corner. I want that. Mexican food trucks, all of us getting free tuition, all of us getting free housing. Like, I'm wondering when these magical black things are going to occur. But I'll also say this, and this is a real challenge, I think, for Joe Biden. Senator Harris said this when she was running. I think it was the most essential thing that she said 
throughout the entire campaign. And I've had my positive and negative criticisms of Senator Harris when she was running and how she ran her campaign. But I can say this. When she spoke at Netroots Nation, she said, racism is a national security issue. Yes. She was the only person who kept hammering on that. It's like, look, these inter-ethnic divisions. And, you know, if we were talking about Central Africa, we'd be like, my God, the fact that these two groups of people hate each other, how are they going to have a functional government? The fact that, you know, if we were talking about Eastern Europe, people like, the fact that these two groups of people hate each other, how can they have a functioning government? Why don't we look at America the same way? And if she brings that attitude to this White House, then maybe we can do something about the growing domestic terror threat. Maybe we can do something about armed militia showing up at state houses and threatening people, because that is going to be the future if we don't want to have to wait till 2065. I love that point, and I want to pivot, because you talked about 2065, so let's go back to 1965. And so I've written about this scholarly pieces that most people will never read, you know, those articles to nowhere for like 10 academics, but I wrote about this triumvirate of these three acts, you know, pushed forward and signed into legislation by my favorite president, LBJ, Civil Rights Act of 64, Immigration and Voting Rights Act of 19. 65. And I've always argued if you pull back one, you essentially pull back all three, right? right? And it's not just a domestic issue. It is an international issue because when we are infighting, that means foreign adversaries are looking at us like, okay, they're not watching the store. Like yeah. they're not unified. And also this stuff costs money. You know, we've talked about this before, Jason, all these cities that have to keep paying out, you know, for bad cop behavior and deaths that shouldn't have happened. Like our money is funny. Now, granted, we always find money for war quick, fast, in a hurry, but we do know that like people looking at us like, ooh, they broke. Like, they're just a little janky. Like, Emperor has no clothes. Trump has exposed us to all the divisions, all the disorganization. We can't properly get a virus under control that much, you know, less wealthier nations have been able to successfully eradicate in many ways. So all of these things add up to this idea that if Joe Biden is going to be successful, does he need to essentially either establish cabinet position or some sort of department or agency to essentially revisit the Civil Rights Act, clearly the Voting Rights Act, because we've got a president who's like, the the voting's been in shambles. And also, immigration always gets pushed to the side, right? Mm -hmm. We always get so busy with everything else, we tend not to ever tackle immigration. We saw this with George Bush. He decided to get on it the last two years of his administration. It was too late. We saw this with Barack Obama. You know, he did some DACA things, but he also, he didn't mind a deportation here and there. And then by the time he got serious about immigration, granted, he had to save the banks and the car industry and pass through healthcare, but like, he didn't tackle immigration. Donald Trump tackled immigration from day one. He's like, hey, Muslims, get out, right? Like, he's been very clear on his vision of immigration. Where do you think we should go, essentially, first 100 days, trying to figure out this culmination of Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, Immigration Act together? So I also want to add, you missed one. You remember at the end of Bill Clinton's presidency, he tried to have that national conversation on race. You remember that one? That blew up too. I'm tired of national conversations and I don't want any. I'm not going anymore. Because guess what? I understand race and racism. That's not for me. I don't want any more conversations. Those conversations, you know, Obama had his beer summit. I don't want any more czars. The czars didn't help out Russia. Why do we keep appointing them? They don't seem to accomplish anything. (laughs) No czars help, right? So here's my thing. You want to talk about from a policy standpoint, and, you know, we know Joe Biden's had conversations with these legacy civil rights groups and said he's what he's going to do. I am not necessarily in favor of a race czar unless that position has a whole administration with it and they have some sort of authority. And they have teeth. Yeah. Because if not, they're basically going to be the diversity person at a university that's hired to not do anything. Okay, so you hire a federal cabinet level DEI? Like, who cares? Like, what can they do? By the way, you want to talk about a difficult hearing process. How the heck are you going to determine who should actually have that spot? 
right? Like the rumors now, Susan Rice, whatever. Who's going to be your race person? Because I can tell you that the kind of black person that would be up for those positions that they would know about would not be the kind of black person. We say this about Barack Obama. If Barack Obama thought like the average black man, he never could have been president. The type of person who could get in there and actually get work done is the type of person who would never be hired. And we see this in corporations and universities all across. Like they're there to essentially keep the natives quiet. They're not there to push forward the agenda, right? They're there to sort of create the diversity super friends and have a task force to nowhere and just basically make sure we don't burn down the Bastille. Whereas if this is going to be a cabinet position that actually does something, you don't want that. You don't want Bertha. Right. Right. Yeah, you don't you don't want Keith, you don't want Dre, you don't want Pookie, you don't want none of those folks, people. And that's okay, just Barack talking, Obama. Yeah. I, Where's Pookie? Who is I'm Pookie? Just saying, Who has I'm ever just met saying. someone named Pookie? I actually have. I actually do. I cousin, we called her that as a baby. We called her Pookie. That I means she wasn't Pookie later on. Mama called Pookie. I'ma call her Pookie. I'ma call her Pookie. Your mama called you Clay, your daddy called you Clay, his name's Clay. Anyway, the point is, I'm a big believer in this. We also already have a division of civil rights, right? Why don't you just give them more power? I don't believe in creating more bureaucracy that doesn't have power. Now, I would love for something, hey, if you want to make this goal, you want to make this goal of racial reconciliation, accomplishing things, you put through a new executive order that says HUD policy, agriculture policy, interior policy has to get like pre-clearance from the Department of Civil Rights, right? You can't push through any policies in these agencies unless the Department of Civil Rights takes a look. That would be amazing. That bureaucratically would make sense. Okay, so Jason, we're clearly going to have to revisit this on several occasions as Biden builds his cabinet and also tries to get these people confirmed, depending on what the Senate composition looks like. So let's shift gears to our last topic today, Jason, which is the loss of some really great Black American patriots, I would call them, public servants, civil servants, people who love this country more than this country love them back. I'm going to start as a New Yorker, my favorite and forever mayor, as I called him, David Dinkins, the 106th mayor of New York City from Newark. So maybe your grandma knew him. You know, he's a veteran, but he passed away at the age of 93, which we all pretty much knew was probably going to happen because his wife died a few weeks prior. And he would always talk about his beautiful bride and they were inseparable for many, many decades. And so it's a great loss to the city. And I think what's been making me so sad is that, you know, obviously because we're in quarantine, we can't have the proper celebration of his life and dedication to the city of New York. I think what made me furious was so many of his obituaries, New York Times included, I'm calling you out because I was furious. But of course, I always said the second line of his obituary would talk about Crown Heights, right? And I was wrong. It was the first line of his obituary. And they distilled his decades long of public service to some one incident. And they never ever talked about the catalyst for that incident, which is a young black boy being killed in the middle of the street and left like an animal to die, right? So no one ever talked about that. It's just like, oh, Crown Heights, and he couldn't handle violence. And so the way that the mainstream media eulogizes or fails to eulogize great Black people has been really weighing on me lately, especially since we know that, you know, we're Generation X, but we're going to start losing more and more of these people who were our parents' age or a little bit older, who really did dedicate themselves to making America, not Black America, but America a better place. And so how do we circle that square in many ways? of like honoring them, but also having to still deal with the racist nonsense in doing so. So, you know, this is one of the painful things about the pandemic. Above and beyond the loss of life, it's the inability to go to Black festivals and conventions where there would be some artist there with the typical picture 
of John Lewis and C.T. Vivian and Chadwick Boseman and David Dinkins all playing pool with Barack Obama and MLK. Um, and Jesus Christ. Don't <laughs> and be Jesus Christ and Black Jesus. You know, because I have already seen the one with Betty Shabazz and Shirley Chisholm all playing spades with Kamala Harris. With Rosa Parks. I was with like, Rosa, Rosa, Rosa Parks play spades? Okay. And, and Harriet Tubman with Cynthia Irvo as Harriet Tubman. Not like the real and, Harriet and Tubman. And P.S. though, you know who else was at the table was Breonna Taylor. And I was like, I don't know, guys. I feel like this, we are taking eulogizing. I mean, this is right. why I love Black people, right? Because Black people, we do the most, the most all the time. All the time. I need my photo of all of them, like the Lion King, looking over Barack Obama, putting his hands on Joe Biden and Cory Booker's shoulder. I don't know. The point is, our ability to eulogize, it's never going to come through any mainstream news outlets. It comes through places like what's in it for us, you know, here at the Grio. Because the way these men and women were perceived when they passed on was always through the lens of how white people experienced them. Marion yes. Barry, who you and I have talked about extensively, Marion Barry was an amazingly accomplished mayor. But all One of the greatest were- mayors in the history of the United States. Yes. Period. Dot end. Period. T, right? That's another thing we got this year. I've got to work on that. Period. 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 DT. But like, if you ask white Gen Xers, if you ask, unless you are a DC journalist who worked in DC from the 70s and 80s and the 90s, most of them lack the context to explain who Marion Barry really was, how many people can say, I got my first job because of programs that he put together. Yeah, Dave Chappelle can say that. Jeffrey Wright can say that. And you know, and sadly, most people only know about Marion Barry because of Chris Rock's flippant jokes about I can smoke crack and be mayor. Hey, Chris Rock, if you're listening, you need to issue an apology and retract that because there's a much longer legacy of Marion Barry marching and doing a lot more heavy lifting in the civil rights movement than he was ever given credit for. So like the joke worked at the time. It doesn't hold up. It's time for you to roll it back. Okay. Like mea culpa, we're fine, but I need you to say that. We just always try to cause static with people. I will say this. I'm not causing static. This is real. So, okay. What's in it for us is that our leaders, comedians or not, need to actually own up to the fact that it was a bad joke. The joke doesn't hold. And it actually is misinformation and it does a lot more damage to black people in the long run. I will say this. This surprised me actually about this, Dr. Greer. So I remember when this happened. My family, we were living in the Virginia suburbs of DC at the time. So I remember when he got caught. I remember seeing the blurry video. I remember this sort of barely distilled glee on the part of all the local anchors who hated his black guts. And I remember seeing on TV when the local anchor would be like, this video is really, okay, just put it on. Just put it on. Like, they, just, yeah. they just wanted to show this so, so badly, so, so badly. But here we are 30 years, I guess, almost later, because that happened in the late 80s, early 90s, almost 30 years later. You know, Dr. Greer, my students at Morgan State, two years ago, I remember having this conversation. They mm-hmm. didn't know about that. They have no idea who they he is. They did not know, yeah. about, like they knew who he was. The stories they heard were like, oh, yeah, my parents got a job from him. Oh, yeah, he had some scandals later on. They actually didn't know the whole mayor smoke drug story. I had to find the video on YouTube to show them. So to a certain extent, it seems like for a lot of these people, as time goes on, what we'll hear about John Lewis, what we'll hear about C.T. Vivian will probably be mythologized in a good way over time because the bad stuff seems to disappear down the drain like so much crap. Yeah. We also just need to make sure that our great Black leaders aren't erased either because that has happened in the past. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments, compliments to me because I need them, to podcast at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Kevin Y. Brown and produced by Abdul Kadoos. 